0: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, everybody. So today, the sponsor for my podcast is my other podcast. I am launching Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. It launched Monday, October 12th, and hopefully it'll stick around for a long time. It features uh, women talking to other women about their journeys of their bodies and getting tips and commiseration and all the things we need so that we don't feel alone and trying to make our bodies feel better tomorrow than they do today. So check out Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight and it's also a community now on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. So if you fall into that category like I do and so many of us, um, come join us. The door is open. Welcome to day two of the Children's Book Blast Week. I'm excited you're here, and I hope you enjoyed the episodes yesterday. Today, I have another two episodes. The first is with Lauren Tarshis. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the I Survived series with more than 30 million copies in print. She tells stories of young people and their resilience and strength in the midst of unimaginable disasters and times of turmoil. She's covered such topics as D Day, Hurricane Katrina, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and other world events. In this book, it's I Survived the California Wildfires, which is unfortunately a very timely book. In addition to being an acclaimed author, Lauren is a mom and an editor of Scholastic Classroom Magazines, which includes Storyworks, an acclaimed national language arts classroom magazine. She currently lives in Connecticut with her family and can be found online at laurentarshis.com.
1: Hi. Hello. So nice to see you.
0: You too. Look
1: at your beautiful. It's like a
0: monk's chamber of books. Yes, it is. Oh my gosh, wait, I should shut that door a second before my son comes in. We're still doing like gradual back to school. And um, oh boy. how old is he? He's five. I also have a seven-year-old and two 13-year-olds, so... Um, oh my goodness. He does like every other day and next week he'll go back for good. But what about you? You have we four do. kids too, right? We do, but they're much
1: older. I feel like everyone but our oldest is home. It's like we're we are sort of like a WeWork meets the Waltons. That's what I feel <laughs> like the vibe I'm trying to, to create. So we've got our... My youngest is 16, so she's able to manage her hybrid schooling pretty independently. I, my heart, i thinking of your, you know, one-year-old particularly.
0: They're in school though. I mean, it's crazy. They're doing Zoom in the afternoons, but the mornings at least they get to go and it's so really? nice get to run you? around. We're in New York City and okay. we just came back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, I, I love your podcast so much. And I really, in my book club and I lis- often listen to you. You were with us, and this was before, you know, I was, so, I was so thrilled and honored when Alex told me that I would be talking to you, because we had, it was very, it was like a day, it was very strangely serendipitous, because it had been maybe just a couple days after we had just gone wild over disappearing Earth, and we listened to you, because we were just fascinated. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was great.
1: That book, like the last, in fact, I would love to like change some t- the topic of our podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about that, because that, I'm sure everyone wants to hear my opinion. About it, just hear it right but I, it really, I had never had the experience. It really, that last line of that book, it physically took my breath away.
0: No, I get it. I get it. I mean, I actually listened to that book, which I don't always do. And I so do. I feel like I was like so immersed in it. And like, I don't know, there's something about listening to books I don't know. It's almost like, like you're more, I don't know. I can't explain it, but (laughs) hopefully you know what I'm talking about.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I actually like to toggle between them. It's very decadent, but I'll have like the the hard cover of that and then listen to it. And especially for that one, because I read on a low level. So I need like a lot of support. So just having her pronounce all the names and the places, you know, the audio helping in that way, then going back to the book.
0: What do you mean you read at a low level?
1: Well, I meaning actually, I, had, I was a terrible reader. It's like the first thing I tell the children when I go to a school. I didn't read a book till I was 14. But that's really not, I mean, and obviously I read fine now, but I, I do have trouble like synthesizing information. I have to, especially when I'm doing research, I'll have to read, you know, if I'm reading a real tome with a lot of dates and places and people, anyway, it's, it's quite ironic that I find like shocking that I find myself talking to you <laughs> Even when I flash back <laughs> my childhood self.
0: I actually tried to reach out to you like two years ago as when I first started my podcast because my daughter who's now 13 had been reading your Japanese tsunami I survived book for school better. But anyway, her school, we were reading that together and I was like, this book is amazing. I have to, and she's like, oh, do you think you can read the other?" I was like, I don't know. I'll try. But it was, I was so new to it. So I don't know. You did, were, you, did you come to me directly or did you go through Scholastic? No, I think I emailed you on your website or something.
1: Oh, no. that um, makes me. There was a period of time, my reader mail is a source because I try to answer everyone. And it's like, it's a source of, as I'm getting older, I'm trying to like, let go of shame and guilt. <laughs> but it's like, I'm, I'm haunted by it. Cause I try, I like, I, I make, you know, I like, I expend a large amount of energy. And then still I hear from kids like, you never wrote me, you know, I never heard <laughs> anyway, well, well, I'm glad you forgave me. Yes, was, I
0: forgave. No, and at the time, I was so new to it. I think you know, I didn't know to go to publicists and like now. You know, anyway.
1: Well, so I I'm normally, you know, I would have leapt at the chance had oh. I uh, had, <laughs>
0: been,
1: had I been, you know, focused on.
0: Uh, well, all to say, it's so nice to be able to talk to you. I can't believe you were saying you're a sort of a slower reader because the amount of research and information and the way you create environments makes everybody feel like they actually lived through all your stories. Like for real, like I feel like I'm like traumatized after I finish reading because I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like <laughs> I just survived all this stuff. It's amazing. So how do you do it? Like, how, first of all, how do you pick which I survived topics? How did you, I know I read somewhere that you had started it for your son, Dylan, on your website, you said that, but tell me about starting the whole series and, and how you now pick which disasters to focus on. Okay,
1: so definitely you're right. The series was inspired, I think, by both my experience as a mom of four kids. The my boys, my older my boys who were the older three, the middle two particularly were not interested in reading at all. So I was always in that situation that so many parents are of just constantly trying to find books that that would you know light them up, and this will be it, and not not succeeding. And at the same time, you know, for many years, for thirty years, which is very staggering, and Now, increasingly shocking number. I have worked at Scholastic in the Ah, magazine division. There's ah, my dog. And so in that role, I have been, I I spend an enormous amount of time with teachers and in classrooms and with kids and trying to take topics that are generally considered, I mean, that are either not engaging inherently or far removed from the lives of our kids. You know, if it's a story about the Civil War or a story about Korea, anything, to try to make those engaging. So I found that through the magazine work, that anytime I had a real child or a fictional child and put them in the middle of the story, those were the stories that their teachers wrote to me about and kids wanted to know more more about. And so I was actually really surprised when I started to think about, you know, that there wasn't already a book series for that age, for that sort of third to fifth grade level that did that. Now there, of course, there are wonderful narrative nonfiction books written by incredible authors, you know, like Deborah Hopkinson and Tanya Bolden, all these amazing authors. But there really wasn't anything in that between Magic Treehouse and Lightning Thief there was this gap in my, you know, for my, for my sons. So I think the hybrid experience for me of being the parent and the, you know, the sort of author educator gave me that inspiration. And that is, you're right. They, they are an enormous amount of research because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, with a very fine brushstroke, create these little, you know, these vignettes for kids. So they really know, you know, what does it smell like, you know, on a, inside a tornado actually, or, you know, what is it feel like to hold a cannonball? So that's really the, the, I mean, that's the fun part of the research, but that is, that does mean that it's not just a sort of linear re- research path of learning about a topic. It's really trying to find this, a lot of the research is ancillary. You know, I'm looking at, you know, kind of going down tributaries, hoping that that will unearth, you know, some incredible detail about, you know, for my California wildfires book, which is unfortunately way too timely at this moment, you know, was really wanting kids to understand because what it was like for a firefighter in a wildfire, what are the sensory experiences that you would have if you had to deploy your fire shelter. So you're interviewing people and reading, you know, very arcane firefighter blogs and, you know, trying to get as close to the, the sources as you can, whether it's, a, which is easier, obviously, for contemporary topics than it would be, you know, writing about ancient Rome. But it's really, I mean, that's definitely the most exciting part other than, well, the most exciting part is, is being with kids and talking to you. <laughs> other than that, of, you know, being on that kind of treasure hunt, for the, the detail that it, I really want a kid to be like, you know, there's, there's always like three or four facts in a book that I just, I want the kids, even if it's not about the detail itself, the topic itself, maybe it's something for the California wildfires. I had this whole front story that the characters, one of them, they run this reptile rescue which is like a real thing that people give up their large pet reptiles because they can't take care of them. And then you or I would like have a shelter for them. So details about like having a large monitor lizard that you're taking care of. because I want kids to just, you know, that, that breaks up that more the background information and all those facts that you also, that I really want them to absorb. So it almost, you know, it's, it's alternating between the boring facts or the just, and these, sparkling details that distract them from the fact that they're actually learning stuff.
0: It's amazing. You should do this for grownups. I mean, it's, it's actually just an exercise in empathy is what you're doing. You're literally putting kids in other people's shoes and you're using it in like historical context, but it's really a gift. It's like, how can you imagine what life is like for someone else going through something hard? And yet you're also teaching them. So I don't know. I feel like the main gift is the, is the empathy piece and and the ability to, it's almost like memoir for kids, right?
1: Mary, <laughs> you so, you like, you're so, you're like, you're inspiring me. I'm going to cling to your words and I'm going to like put them in my heart and my brain and they will be there with me all day. Because... You know, it's 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 sort of sometimes it feels like almost a ridiculous amount of work. You know, like luckily my editor and my you know the people who I work with they do understand. But these books, they they that you would, looking at these little you know, little paperbacks, you'd think that I just sort of, you know, that they could be especially now that I've written twenty that they would just be sort of so easy. They're quite torturous, and my when I'm about to you know get into that heavy deadline mode with my family, everyone's like, all right. It's gonna be it's and I'll say to my husband, I think this one's gonna be easier. And he's like, okay. I'm glad you say that before every single one, but I don't think it's I don't think you're, I think you're it's gonna be
0: horrible. Like how long does it take? Like how long do you research and then how long does the writing take and all of it?
1: Well, I generally because I have very kind and understanding, you know, the editor, my editor Katie and the whole team, I have been generally gotten away with writing all the way on up to the very last second and they have wanted two a year up till now so that means 6 months for each one but it's really it became too much for me i mean i just i just because the minute i finished one i would have like a week and then i would just have to completely shed you know revolutionary war and plunge into you know world war 2 or you know so I just became, and then the joy of it kind of started to go away from me, to be honest. You know, I, this is very much, I feel so for, you know, I don't want to sound, you know, like one of those people, like it's such a joy, you know, all that. Cause it's, but it is a, it's a very, I mean, look, the experience again of being able to talk to you and hear you respond to this work that I've done in the way that you do. It's an incredible, I just feel like tickled by it constantly. And I found myself, you know, around maybe book 15, 16, really feeling like I just couldn't keep this up. So fortunately, they had the very genius idea of creating a line of graphic novels based on I Survived. So they're, you know, and I'm a little bit involved, you know, they're incredibly kind about, you know, I approve things and I, there's this incredible author named Georgia Ball. She's a script writer for graphic novels and she somehow interprets my stories in this really lyrical way. So she, the team just does a beautiful job and I get to kind of watch and then weigh in on the history and all of that. So that now has enabled us to create a schedule, like an You know, an annual schedule that is much more that lives leaves more breathing room, but it's really six months. By the you know, researching and I. One of the problems now is with COVID. I'm not able to travel, Mm -hmm. so I have traveled except for Japan and the bottom of the North Atlantic to see the Titanic. I've gone everywhere for for the books because I do feel like that's a super important thing, and I like to take video there because I like to you know be able to show the kids you know what what it would have been like for you know, the characters, and for them to walk in the character's shoes. And often the stories then give birth to nonfiction articles that appear in the magazine StoryWorks, I don't know, which which is like this beautiful labor of love that I create with a team at Scholastic. It's this ELA magazine. I'll send you something for your, well, I'll send you StoryWorks, the second grade version, which is so adorable for your seven-year-old. So, you know, the work I do when I survived, actually many different sprouts come from it that end up blooming in different places. So
0: I bet, I mean, I'm sure you have thought of this, but I bet there are a lot of people who would jump at the chance to help you do your research and like speed along the process of these books. Do you feel like it's hard to outsource that? You're
1: so, you're so, I would love it. And I've had, you know, there, and I, but the problem is, is, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, is that so much of, is I really do, I, I've learned to create the character for the most part, that's the first thing I do now, and that's that's something I learned from my editor katie who's 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 only been doing the books for the past i think three or four, but she's really helped me understand that I used to discover the character during the writing process and then have to go back and research to create additional experiences for my my character to have these you know <laughs> epiphanies or opportunities for growth, but she was like, no, that is not real. you have to figure out the character it's like 101, you know, I'm sure this is what your daughter's 13 year old <laughs> writing the character's journey. So that is something, you know, that now I do, I really do try to figure that out beforehand after a little bit of research, just understanding basically kind of the trajectory of the book. But then all of that, a great stuff, all those, it really is, I discovered accidentally. And I, and sometimes what I discover in research, like, I spent several days just researching helicopters for the wildfire story. And I learned that like the cool, the, the, the ones that many of the firefighters have loved the most are these old Hueys from Vietnam, you know, from the Vietnam war. So just that's the kind of thing that I couldn't have that a person, a researcher, and that became like the little chapter head spots, those helicopters and they led me into this whole incredible world of like magazine articles and, you know, blog posts by firefighter, you know, helicopter pilot pilots, the people who are now in Oregon. And that create, helped me create these two characters that are, you know, one particular character in the book. One of the firefighters is this woman who is just, you know, very badass, who's the best helicopter pilot in their Cal Fire district,
0: what do you, I mean, I know the forest fires now are raging again. It's like unthinkable that, I mean, <laughs> that your book would be coming out be this timely. I know you mentioned it, but like, how are you to say leveraging it sounds totally crude and commercial, but like, how are you, how are you getting the word out? Cause now people are really suffering right now and could probably use this experience. You know what I mean? I feel like you should be like airdropping books of them to California or something. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, I've been in touch, you know, the, I don't know, the the story of that book is very, it it had a very wonderful emotional component, which is that one of the things that happens to me as the author of of this series, but also in my role at the magazines is that a lot of people do reach out to me directly in the aftermath of disasters. So this lovely woman named Holly Fisher wrote to me four days after I think four days after the town of Paradise burned down. She had grown up there and her son Lucas reads my books. And she just wrote me this beautiful email, like, you know, I'm right the camp, you might have heard about the fire that destroyed my town of paradise the fire is still burning. I think that you should come here. I know you'd have many people who would want to share their stories. So we got in touch and there were other people who had written to me from, from those areas. So a few months later, my three of the four kids and my husband and I went to paradise and we met Holly and her husband, Josh, who's a firefighter who helped save people in a parking lot, you know, unbelievable. And they took us around the ruins of the town and then we went back in the summer to kind of see how things were. And I wrote an article about it for the magazine and we created a video. And I wasn't really intending to write an I Survived book about it. But a lot of the kids said to me, are you going to write about this? And then I thought, you know, that I learned so much when I was there. And I do think it's a very important climate story, you know, and it's a story also about, you know, our relationship with nature. And, you know, not all of it is climate. I mean, a huge part of it is, but it's also how we have, you know, the, these this interesting, I don't know if you remember the book, The Big Burn. I think it was Tim Egan. He writes about that was the biggest wildfire in American history. I think it was 1910, if I'm not mistaken. But that fire in the Bitterroot Mountains in Idaho and Montana, it gave rise to the whole fire suppression policy. We're going to put out every fire because it was so terrifying. And it made sense, like, but people didn't understand how important regular fires were to forest health and preventing the overload of, you know, dead trees and brush that is fueling. There's some crazy, I mean, it's like, we could talk for a long time about this, but so I I, I decided that it would be worthwhile to do, but I didn't, I am very, I don't want to be like tweeting about my wildfire book every day, uh, you know, now that the wildfire book is burning. And I think if, you know, if kids discover it, I mean, I'm I'm in touch with Holly every day because they're in paradise their, you know, their house it survived. Nothing else in their neighborhood did. And she's very involved in trying to rebuild Fair Paradise. So it's tricky. You know, I don't want to be. I feel like it's. I'm really. I know that that the people of Paradise and those towns want people to know what happened to them, mm-hmm. and share. You know, and to and and they were really. You know, the just the these these people fighting the fires, all of that. So I really want this to be about honoring them, but I don't want to be like you know, in any way, I mean, I don't want people to, and I don't want people, I don't think it's appropriate, frankly, for someone, you know, I don't imagine if I was a parent, I would necessarily, I mean, even though there was the, the fire fire book has a very happy ending, of course. And it's a very, it's a story of resilience, like all of them. If I, I keep thinking if I was a parent in par you know, in California, Oregon right now, would I, this be the book I want my kid reading? Maybe not. <laughs> so later, you know, when they can really connect and for people, elsewhere mm-hmm. to empathize and to really want to engage and help people in the back. There's stuff on what you can do. So that I think is, is super important.
0: Totally. I sat down, I tried to read it to my two little guys who, as I mentioned, are five and seven. And I started reading it and they're like, but this is a fire. This is so scary. And I was like, okay, I'm going to say okay. Yeah. You're, yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think that I'm, a, I, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm continually, they are, my daughter never read, my daughter did, did not read my books. She was too scared. And I think that's, you know, I think these are really, these are books that are for certain kids who are not going to over-identify. And so I I hear you. I'm, you know, and I don't, you know, I recommend, you know, I don't recommend, you know, I, I don't recommend them for very young kids. I'm shocked I'll get letters from parents like, we just read the, we just read the 9-11 book together to our kindergartner
0: have you ever thought about writing an adult version? Like I Survive? you know, I mean, it would have to be, you know, repackaged, but I don't know. I just feel like these, there are a lot of grownups who could benefit from learning about the wildfires right now. We're learning about all these scenes and, you know, people, a lot of grownups have such short attention spans now that almost, I mean, not that reading your younger kids books couldn't benefit them, but I just feel like parents might be reluctant to read them on their own, but Right. you have yeah. such great information and the sensibility behind them, you know, not that you need another project. you're overwhelmed as it is. But I'm just saying, like, it's a unique skill to be able to take something that happens in the world and make it so relatable immediately that I feel like the world could really use, even for grownups. That's all.
1: Well, that's I, I think it would be. I, you know, I there are so many. I'm I'm a that's definitely my favorite genre. You know, the great narrative nonfiction writers, and there's so many of them. Is it William longbeach I can never pronounce his name. William longbeach He writes for The Atlantic. He wrote the Is it the Looming Tower? Tim Egan. There are just so many amazing authors who are doing this. And I read all of their books and I think, oh my gosh, you know, it would be sort of a dream to (laughs) be able to spend a couple of years. And, and even there was this great book and you're my, I'm showing my age because I, I have zero short-term memory where it's it's quite a problem, although people seem to be fairly indulgent. But there's a great there's a great book I recommend, which is the kind of book I would love to write called This Is Chance. Have you heard of this? No. About the Alaska earthquake. It just came out this past year. It's so wonderful. And the author, I can tell you, because it's I can tell you, the author, it's this 1962 earthquake that happened in Alaska, right when Alaska was sort of, you know. Getting on solid ground as a state and Anchorage was sort of growing and, and just pulls in all these wonderful tangents about Alaska, about the time period, and about this woman, Ginny Chance, who is the weather weather woman and brought people hope and calm in the aftermath of this completely devastating earthquake and tsunami in Alaska. So, the idea of bringing to life an, an, a little known event, but also illuminating. This large chapter of our history. And of course, there are all sorts of things that, all sorts of insights that are applicable to us today. So maybe I will.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you were going to write and I survived about something really awful from your own life, like what would that be about?
1: Oh boy, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. From my own life, well, I think that I'm fortunate that I've as I always tell the kids, they're always like, did you live through any of those disasters? So I always say, well, I've seen a tornado from a distance and I've been through a bunch of hurricanes because you're on the East coast and I've been in an earthquake, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was in California, but it wasn't a, you know, a huge one. So I've never felt that my life has been in danger through because of an event, like the way my characters are. But I have been through one of our sons had, you know, was what had a, an illness that lasted a few years and he's great. So, you know, and fortunately it was not this dire, you know, thing like many people experience, but, you know, the experience, I think, of, of, of your life shattering apart, which is what so many of the people now, so many people are experiencing at this moment, whether it's because of COVID directly or because of the economic collapse or because of now these fires You know, that's something that I, you know, fortunately have not, you know, ever been through. But of course, it's what we all, you know, we all know. I think that's what keeps me writing these stories in a lot of ways is we think we have all this control. over. That's what I've learned over and over. These two big lessons. We think we have a lot of control and that we can really, by being really careful or very planning in advance or disciplined or good, that we can forestall Something, but we, you know, we can't. The other piece, the flip side, which is why I keep doing it, because if you only focus on that first part, it gets very grim, (laughs) is that I am really honestly like talking to Holly Fisher from Paradise. I hang up the phone with her and I just feel so like stronger. People go through those shattering events and you see it, whether it's looking at, you know, what happened, you know, in during the Holocaust or what happened during the Chicago fire or, you know, these wild, you know, in paradise, people find the strength, you know, they go through a grieving process. It's really hard. It's not quick for some people. It's, you know, terrible and agonizing and lengthy, but people for the most part do find the strength somehow to go on and feel joyful again. And I'm sitting here, I'm in this beautiful office of mine because that used to be my mother in law's apartment, which is connected to our house. She died at the age of 97, a couple of years ago. So she lived with us for 10 years and she was a survivor of World War I and a refugee. And she just had this a life that you cannot even, I mean, that should be a book. And one of my, my one regret is that I didn't write her story because I didn't think she wanted me to. And it wasn't until the very end that it was clear that she would have liked that. <laughs> and okay. she was going to write it herself. But I would wake up sometimes and she was a real night owl. She would stay up until two in the morning. And she lived for many years in the Jewish ghetto of Shanghai during, you know, during World War II and lost people in the Holocaust and all that. And I would, you know, get up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water if one of my kids needed me. And I'd hear this noise coming from here. And it was her on the phone with like her friend Hilda in Rome laughing, this joyful, you know, Hilda Huda. And I would think what, you know, After all you've been through, you know there's still a lot of joy. So that's, I think, you know, what makes me happiest, what really gives me a lot of satisfaction, you can imagine, is when I hear from kids who who are going through difficult things, and I learn they write to me, or their parents write to me, and they say that the books somehow, you know, kids who've been through difficult events find they connect with my characters, and they find, you know, it's not a trauma to read, it's not triggering them, but it's actually. Bolstering them in some way. So I, I, I think, of course, every person reacts differently, but it, that's it's I've it's been a lesson. It's a constant lesson through all the research. You it's know,
0: it's an inspiring takeaway. I mean, it's just super inspiring. That's what, and especially now, it's what people need. So, do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: I think, yes. I mean, I I don't know what you think, but, and I'd actually love, at another time we'll have to talk because I'm curious on your take after speaking to so many authors, but, you know, I don't consider myself, you know, a Julia Phillips-like literary novelist, Alice Monroe, you know, my heroes, but I really think of myself as a storyteller who... It's constantly working on her craft. Like I do embroidery. Here's my latest embroidery sampler that I did. Oh, <laughs> very analogous. You know, it's like you learn these different stitches and you practice them um, and you notice one, like you'll I, in Julia's book or in, you know, one of the Owls and will sort of see this amazing, like, look at this sentence and I'll look at, write it down and study it. So I think that writing is something that is, can be, that is, it can be learned and people improve and that writing a, you know, the a, a few books that are bad and unpublishable is really part of that journey. So that's the advice, you know, just, you have to start writing your bad books and kind of and and looking at those as part of the learning process.
0: I have heard from so many people, and it seems to me that the magic number is three. You have to write like three novels before, like the third one might sell. But the first two, you should just say, even though you think these are gonna be like the great American novel, like it's okay if they don't sell at the end. Like most people have to write two full novels before they sell one. That's just my anecdotal.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I also think, you know, the other piece of it is, that maybe it's different now, because I think people see, you know, right, the world of of writing and writers has changed so much over the past 20 years. And it's, you know, it's hard to make a living as a writer, right? So most, I think the idea of taking it on and not be as upset, not be, not being as obsessed with becoming a bestseller, or become, you know, that saying, this is something I want to do. This is something I'm going to do. I mean, that was sort of my, rev- you know, I wrote like a really terrible first novel that I sent out like beautifully bound from Kinko's with a spiral to like, you know, and imagining like the movie rights and you know maybe they'll, they'll ask me to do a cameo. After. It was terrible, you know, so, but it wasn't my dad who was a writer. He's a, he was a freelance writer when I was growing up and he worked for magazines, very scrappy when you could make a sort of living as a freelance writer. My mom was a teacher and that helped but my dad loved what he did. And he did all kinds of, you know, all kind, you know, all nonfiction. And, but he, I remember when I like proudly told him, you know, I was writing, you know, this, this novel and I was very stressed. I wanted to finish it. And, he, and, he, and my dad's the nicest guy in the whole world. He never says anymore, but he kind of looked at me and he goes, no one is waiting for your novel. <laughs> and it was actually like, No one cares if you finish it. So (laughs) take time and make it good. And and the idea of like wanting to finish something. So my two pieces of advice, feel great and excited about your, you know, the books that you might consider bad. And then it is an ongoing learning process. So and that's what makes it, I think, that's what makes it satisfying.
0: Well, Lauren, I feel like our time is sort of up because I try to keep my show to 30 minutes, but I feel like I could sit here and chat books with you all day. And I hope that sometime we can like get together or something.
1: I would love it.
0: I uh, I want to hear what your book club is reading and, you know, all the rest. So
1: (laughs) I just, your, your, your work is so wonderful. And I love, you know, I've loved listening to your podcast and it's very much, I sort of feel like I know you. So this is, (laughs) so it's been, a huge treat for me to be huh. able to spend time with you. So yes, please stay in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Okay, well, thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. okay, bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to day two of the Children's Book Blast Week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I enjoyed recording it. Don't forget to check out my new podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Pretty soon, Moms will not Have Time to Listen to Podcasts. And check out the Instagram community that goes along with it. And if you would like to join, please request to join. It's for anyone who wants to feel body better in their body tomorrow than they do today. And it's a supportive group of like-minded souls who just need the community to achieve their goals. Moms don't have time to lose weight. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.